Thank you, Johanna. That was um, a nicer introduction than I was prepared to process in the moment. Thank you. Um, I think I need to like go like motiva- motivational speaker with it and just take it off off stand. Um, so um, I just wanted to say that. Um, Got to get my technology straight here. So I, I chose the name for this speech, Up With Bad, when it was still in its infancy. And it has mellowed as it has matured. <laughs> so I think at this point it's more like up with a wide spectrum of human behavior, <laughs> including badness. So I have friends who say, you know, they knew when they were pretty young that they wanted to be a reporter, they wanted to be a journalist. I didn't. Um, But I think it was a right fit for me because I could use a skill that I had been honing really since childhood, which uh, is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. (laughs) I was the youngest in my family, and everything, the whole world, always seemed to be happening up here, just out of reach. Just every conversation had double entendres that I was not getting either entendre of, (laughs) and and jokes that I didn't understand even when my parents or whoever it was explained it to me. Like, my seventh grade history teacher's name was Mr. Philander. (laughs) My parents thought it was funny. Explained it to me. Nothing. Never going to be funny to an 11-year-old. And I did ask questions to try and, you know, dig down and get to the bottom of things, and, and sometimes that led in an even more disturbing direction. I remember asking my dad one day, uh, I think I was eight or nine, what French kissing was. He's a lawyer, and he likes to be very clear about things. So he said, well, Nan, it means that you are permitted to put your tongue in someone else's mouth. And they are permitted to put their tongue in your mouth. (laughs) So, naturally, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out things on my own. (laughs) A lot of reading and a lot of listening. We had a big record collection. Records, creak. And, uh, and I had favorites that I loved, loved, and would just listen to, you know, obsessively again and again. And I dug some of them out for this talk. That was really fun. And realized that um, my favorites were this really quite weird mix of musicals. I can still sing several songs from Oklahoma by heart. Children's stories read aloud by actors, including some just very disturbingly grim ones, and live comedy. I loved Steve Martin. Well, I'm rambling, rambling round, I'm a rambling guy. Ramble out to the different times score in a car, get a hotel. Oh, yes, 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 o
like so much else I was hearing at this time, I just didn't, I didn't get a lot of it. What I did get, and why I kept listening to it over and over, was that Steve Martin seemed to be up on stage doing anything he wanted. Like, start with a banjo, make up a song, kind of fake sing it, you know, tell some stories, talk to the audience. Okay, I don't like to um, gear my material to the audience, but... Um... I'd like to make an exception because I was told uh, that there is a convention of plumbers in San Francisco this week, and I understand about 30 of them came down to the show tonight. So before I came out, I worked up a joke especially for the plumbers, and uh, now those of you who aren't plumbers probably won't get this and won't think it's funny, but I think those of you who are plumbers will really enjoy this, and uh, so if you're not a plumber, please just bear with me for a while and just kind of uh, you know, hold off on this, but I would like to do this for the plumbers. So here we go. This lawn supervisor was out on a sprinkler maintenance job. <laughs> and he started working on a Finlay sprinkler head with a Langstrom 7-inch gangly wrench. <laughs> well, just then a little apprentice leaned over and said, uh, you can't work on a Finlay sprinkler head with a Langstrom 7-inch wrench. <laughs> well, this infuriated the supervisor, so he went and got volume 14 of the Kinsley Manual. <laughs> and he reads to him and says, the Langstrom 7-inch wrench can be used with a Finlay sprocket. Just then, the little apprentice leaned over and says, It says sprocket, not socket. (laughs) I love his laugh at the end. So even with Steve Martin's incredibly long, perfect setup about how this is a joke for plumbers, it's only for plumbers, don't worry if you don't get it. I mean, after years of listening to it, just all adults tell jokes that I didn't understand. I thought for many, many rounds of listening to this album that this was just one more adult joke that I didn't get. Until I realized that no one in the audience got the joke, and that was the joke, which also blew my mind. The whole, the whole meaning of the joke was something that he wasn't saying ever in the words of the joke. It was just the first time I remember encountering and understanding that kind of sorcery with, with language and with speaking words. Uh, for me, as a kid, it was just this, this incredible glimpse uh, into what was, what was possible. Then there was the absolute other end of my childhood listening spectrum. Some of you may have guessed it already. Leo Tolstoy stories read aloud. I got the album as a gift from my mom. And this Tolstoy album is the only one, sadly, I couldn't find at, at, at my mom's. But I remember the stories well, and I found them online. And there was one called The Raven and His Young. Really stuck with me. Listen to this. A father raven is carrying each of his sons, one at a time, across the water to a new nest. And when he gets to the middle of the water, the father gets tired. He starts to feel his wings getting weaker and weaker. And he asks his son the following question. I'm quoting from the story here. The old raven asked his son, When I am weak and you are strong, will you carry me? Tell me the truth. The young raven was afraid that his father might drop him into the ocean. And he said, I will. But the old raven did not believe his son and he opened his claws and let him fall. He dropped like a lump and drowned in the sea. (laughs) It goes on from there. (laughs) 
the only raven son to survive this Q&A is the last one who tells his father, no, I'm not going to carry you. I'm going to have my own kids to carry around and take care of, and I'm going to be busy with that. And the father believes that son, and that's the one he takes to the new nest. I could not get enough of this story. I listened to it again and again because what did it mean? What was the moral of this story to a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old? Be honest, maybe? Always arrange your own transportation? Like, the, the whole thing was, was, was just unthinkable, so, so comically over-the-top terrible from, from beginning to end. And, and after a while, I thought, well, maybe that's the point of the story or part of the point. Terrible things do happen, even unthinkable things. And I don't remember being scared by that. More like, okay, all right, that's important to know. So today, I feel a lot less certain than I did now about what is truly important to know. But a lot of the things that catch my attention and and hold it Um, now are the same kind of things that I liked as a kid. I like funny, I like grim, and as a reporter, I am constantly, deliberately putting myself in situations where I don't know what the hell is going on. So, part one of this talk is going to be funny, with some grimness built in, and then we're going to switch it. And brace yourselves, because we're going to start with TV, the old medium from before podcasts. (laughs) Now, this is not an original thought, but it is true. We are in, in addition to a fantastic podcast surge, uh, an incredible comedy surge, just people doing a lot of great different things, obviously Louis C.K.'s show, but also Nick Kroll, Key and Peele, just a lot of people bringing a comic's very sharp eye to the world we're living in. You know, not dumb jokes, but, but real insight. And my favorite, favorite sketch comedy show at the moment is Inside Amy Schumer. I think Amy Schumer is ridiculously funny, and she usually works very blue, um, as they say, but I'm going to play a scene from her show that's not blue at all. Um, in case anyone was worried. Um, It's just uh, two minutes and 49 seconds of perfectly observed human behavior. This is from an episode, self-explanatory, I think, called Terrible People. Uh, Extra sprouts and no mayo. Yeah. My name's Amy. Yeah. Wow. Freedom Tower is, like, really coming along, huh? God, I can't believe it's been 12 years since 9-11. Oh, my God, I know. It's bananas. Time really flies. I can't remember. Do they take a long time here? No, they're usually pretty quick. Okay. I was actually supposed to be meeting my girlfriend at the World Trade Center that day. I mean, I'm on, like, Walker Street, and I hear this crazy noise, but, like, I wasn't thinking it was anything bad. But then I look up... I'm just kind of freaking out right now that I want mayo. 
you know, I'm like, why did I act like I didn't want it? <laughs> but I don't have to go talk to them. I am so present and here with you right now. I can stay. Uh, well. Everything's cool. <laughs> They're gonna put mayo on it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so what, what's going on in the story? What were you? Uh, the fireball. Ooh, right. Keep going. Yeah, so for hours, I'm, like, calling my girlfriend, and I can't get through to her. Oh, my God, is that Dina Lohan? It's like a pile of cups. Sorry, what's happening? Uh, yeah, I'm calling my girlfriend, right. and I can't, I, like, I can't reach her, because all the cell phones are jammed, and everyone is trying to call. Verizon? It's Verizon, right? Uh, they cannot get it together. It's been, like, 130 years, like... Like, help us out. Help us make a call, right? <laughs> Verizon, it's like, run a business. Can, can yeah. we stand over there? I'm scared I'm not going to hear when they call my name, but I want to keep an eye on my sandwich. Yeah, sure. So it's loud over here. You, you thought she was dead? Yeah, so finally at like 8 p.m., my girlfriend calls me, but she's so hysterical, I can barely understand a word she's saying. Yeah, wait, speaking of that, can you just stop talking for like one second? I'm trying to Shazam a song, it's like not tagging, I think because you're talking to me. Yeah, I know it's Robin Thicke, but I don't know what Robin Thicke, <laughs> you know? Oh, it's Pink. I'm an idiot. Amy? Oh. Thank you. Anyway, so she made it out, but mm -hmm. like as they were running, they heard these loud noises and they realized that it was. A oh sandwich. my gosh! They didn't put mayo on my sandwich. Why is my life the worst life? Do you want to take it back? No, I don't want them to think I'm an ass. God, I'm in the worst mood now. Whatever. So where were you on 9/11? I don't remember. I think my favorite moment is when she says she doesn't want to take the sandwich back because she doesn't want them to think she's an asshole. Okay, here's what I love about this sketch, though. I recognize these people because, and I don't think I'm alone on this, because I have been some version of both of those people. I have been the self-absorbed friend who is faking interest in another friend's story. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And not even doing it well, just kind of openly obsessing about my sandwich or the song or whatever. And I have been the friend who is earnestly trying to tell someone the long version of my where I was on 9-11 story or some equivalent when realistically the circle of people who might want to hear more than a sentence or two about that is not even a circle. It is a dot that I am standing on. <laughs> I think Amy Schumer is a genius at rendering moments like this in her show. She is like a reporter whose beat is small-scale awfulness and lameness and self-delusion. She is, she is the closed-circuit TV camera capturing the times when the gap between our best intentions and our follow-through starts to widen even more than usual. And she makes clear in her sketches that... You know, on the show, you know, we are all sinners in the realm of daily relationships. Sometimes we're the perpetrator, sometimes we're the victim. Often we are an unholy mix of both. Gliding gracefully from one unholy mix to another, I would like to talk about Mark Marin and his podcast, WTF. So, 
I've listened to a fair number of pod, comedy podcasts. Not all of them, but, but a bunch. And um, I go back to, to Mark Maron's more than any, any other one. Um, I think he's a better interview than lots of people, certainly better than other comedians I've heard. He's also more thin-skinned, more petty, more jealous of other comics, more angry. His flaws are like this pack of dogs that he's sometimes walking calmly with and sometimes like getting yanked down the street by. And they make his interviews unpredictable and revealing on all sorts of subjects, fame, sanity, sex, joke-stealing, and race. Race comes up a lot in Mark Maron's interviews. He brings it up, or more like launches himself into it. And the conversations that ensue are, are just not like any other conversations you hear in this country about race. So this is the beginning of, of a bananas exchange Mark Maron had during a live show. And the show, um, the show is, it was basically just him on stage during one short, doing one short interview after another with, with a bunch of different comics. So, so here he is talking to a comedian named Ian Edwards. Mark asks him what seems like a generic opening question. Where, where are you from originally? I uh, was born in England, raised in Jamaica, then moved to New York, and then now I live in California. Because there was a time where you, you kind of leaned on the, the Jamaican thing, but that's almost all gone now. Well, you don't lean on it. You just, you're from there. <laughs> how the fuck do you lean on some shit you're from? I mean, I, I mean, I My mean, bad. I don't really understand that one, Mark. But, hey. You're really leaning on this white thing. I just, uh, hope one day it goes away, Mark. <laughs> I remember uh, listening to this and thinking, oh my God, where is this going? And this is where it went. First, Mark and Ian move on from this moment, have a funny, very friendly back and forth about a show they did together where there was like a fire alarm going off the whole time and Ian Edwards was like riffing on the fire alarm, like doing his routine with the fire alarm. So they laugh about that, they talk for a bit more, and then their interview ends and Mark Maron turns to start interviewing another comic. Again, his live show, he's interviewing one after another, and they're all on stage. Um, and so, so Maron is talking to this new guy for a while about the guy's hometown of New Orleans. And they get into Hurricane Katrina and the flooding of the city. And this is the end of that conversation with the, with the New Orleans comic. There were two comedy shows in New Orleans before the flood, and then there were three afterwards. <laughs> People had shit to talk about. I did a about, benefit right? there, like, uh, but it was a year later, and I was like surprised at the devastation. Yeah, I, I, that still happened. Like, and I guess I should, you know, to be fair and, and not to be like, you know, thought of as like someone who avoided it. Do you, what? Do you have family in Jamaica still? Yeah. So here, Mark is turning back to Ian Edwards to include him in the New Orleans conversation and listen to what happens. And did oh, you go back there? I got family there. I haven't seen them in a minute, though. Oh, okay. I just didn't want you to get off stage going, talk about Katrina, but not uh, what happened in my country. Okay. But, but, you know, he just fucked up. That's Haiti. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I really fucked up. What the hell is going on? <laughs> I think that's, uh, that would be that, that white guilt do you, again. Do you, have, do you have family in that black island of yours? <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, they're all the same. 
same black island. Yeah, yeah. Earthquake. Jesus, Mark. Jesus, Ian. I, I apologize. Sorry. Sorry. It's all right. I don't think I'm going to recover from this one. <laughs> like, I knew it was Haiti, but for some reason I decided it was Jamaica. And I thought, this is really going to save me and Ian on the race thing. Like, you know, I, I'm listening to, I'm listening to Sean. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take this moment and really put out an olive branch and make this work. These are comedians. So this breathtaking gaffe by Mark does not lead to a debate or a careful apology. It leads to just riffing and more riffing. Mark keeps trying to find a way to kind of get in front of what he said. And Ian Edwards just keeps making one joke after another about what happened, trying to find the best one, the most perfectly distilled truth about what just happened. But, but I, I, I didn't send money to Haiti either. I did a, a couple. Um, <laughs> you, you sure you didn't send it to Panama or some other island? <laughs> no, I... How sure are you that you sent it to Haiti? Haiti? From Mark Marin to Black Island. <laughs> in the mail. <laughs> oh, I did my part. It's just, oh. just going put to put, put the money in a bottle and shoved it in the ocean and sail into the Caribbean. Oh, it's going to help somebody. So, at some point, there's a break in the riffing and Marin says, I'm just sitting here thinking that even though this is my own show, it's a live show and there's no way I'm going to be able to edit this screw up out of it. And it's, it's sort of a, like, a, like a, he's, he's really coming to the realization on the stage. And I was listening and thinking, thank God. So, okay, that's part one. Part two is going to be grim with some funniness. Okay. I want to talk about the podcast Love and Radio. And I'm betting pretty much everyone in this room knows it, but maybe not. So I'll just give a little... Summary. Um, it's, a, it's a great show, very unusual. It's, it's interviews with people you're not going to hear anywhere else, talking about things you're not going to hear anywhere else. Um, just, I mean, usually personal, it's about their life. It's not like, you know, usual public radio fair, you know, sex and seediness and the things that just normally happen but don't always end up on the airwaves. Um, and these interviews are... are, um, are meticulously edited and, and mixed into these non-narrated profiles of people. So um, I've listened a bunch of times to, I think, my favorite episode, which is called The Wisdom of Jay Thunderbolt. Um, and part of what I love about this story is that it feels a little bit to me like a Tarantino movie. Like, you kind of don't know when the funny part is going to happen and when the scary part is going to happen. So in this story, um, Nick and, and his friend Noah have gone to interview this guy, Jay Thunderbolt, who runs a strip club out of his house, sort of, sometimes. It seems like by appointment. Like, you call him and he sets it up for you. And he's like, you know, stripper, wrangler, DJ, bouncer, just... He's, he's, he does that for a living. The strip club is not happening when Nick and Noah are, are doing the interview. They're all just kind of sitting around this guy's apartment. And Jay Thunderbolt is, you know, he's kind of all over the map. Like, part of the time he's explaining his business. Part of the time he's telling stories about his life, like getting shot in the jaw when he was 11. But he spends a lot of time making angry fun of Nick and Noah for being in his place of business 
and not wanting to do any business, i.e. hire strippers. At some point, Jay gets a phone call, seems like maybe it's from one of the dancers, and he, he kind of makes fun of Nick and Noah to the person he's on the phone with. Good afternoon, Thunderbolt Entertainment. Hi, Derrico. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey. You guys got any money on you? You want some dancers? I was trying to You're scare You are fucking chicken shit cocksuckers, aren't you? No, they don't want any dancers. Give me a call in two hours, dear. Because I'm going to throw them the fuck out when this bottle of... This bottle's almost gone now. All right. Bye. So, I mean, he's he's cursing in a sort of, like, I talk all the time this way. Like, it's not, you know, it's like this is not, like, a more alarming moment than, than, than any other. Um, and he's just kind of, like, poking fun at them. But he keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. And the next 25 minutes are this sort of extraordinary um, just sort of building of scenes um, that make clear that this is this is sort of part an interview and a profile um, and also a constant assessment on the part of Nick and Noah, I assume, of what the hell is going on. There, there's just a sense of, of menace hanging over the whole conversation. Like... Jay is, is tolerating, you know, these two guys in his apartment for now. And sometimes he's enjoying it, sometimes being funny. But he's also right on the verge of maybe not tolerating it for one more second. And you don't really know what that is going to mean. So the whole time he's, he's making clear, he keeps poking at them. He's, he's making clear he's sizing them up. He's scrutinizing them as they're scrutinizing him. And he keeps kind of sticking a verbal finger in their chests. And... The interview is Nick trying to squeeze questions in between these moments when Jay is prodding him and Noah to like get with the program and kind of join him in his world if they're going to sit there in his living room. Which leads, at some point, to the possibly good or bad idea of Noah going out to buy tequila, which they start drinking when Noah gets back. I got Cazodres. I don't know how my bosses would feel about this. Sir. <clears throat> oh, cheers, boys. Here's cheers. looking at you. Cheers. Pleasure to meet you. They clink, they do a shot, and uh, Jay turns to Noah with a nice sociable question. What do you do for a woman, Noah? Uh, nursing. Mom and Dad must be happy that you don't have to be on their Blue Cross card anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. I have a different Blue Cross card. What's yours look like? Not like that. Hey, this is Nick again. You know, I, I hate interrupting like this, uh, but uh, what's not actually clear from the tape is that at this stage, uh, Jay is taking out a gun and is now pointing it about two inches from my face. Here it is again. I have a different Blue Cross card. What's yours look like? Not like that. <laughs> I love that moment when Nick lets out this not laughing at all laugh and then doggedly steers things back to an interview. <laughs> that was so what is that? It. 38. It's a 38. Something's got P loads in it. How long have you been carrying that around for? I've been licensed to carry a gun since I got out of the service. 
You were in the service? Where'd you find? I was with the 160th SOAR Special Operations Armed Response. I can't really tell you. How about this? When Reagan was in office, I did a lot of Southern Hemisphere work. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Up and down, in and out. To stop it there just because I don't want to give away what happens, um, except to say that he is this very um, complicated, unpredictable guy in lots of ways, not just having to do with guns. And it's just, it's just an extraordinary story um, that uses, I think, you know, all of the sort of immersive tools of, of journalism and radio journalism. And by the end, it really feels like you have been in another place. You have been in the room with them, kind of sweating it out along with them. So the last thing I want to talk about briefly is cereal. Um, again, I'm assuming that a lot of people know what it is, um, but quickly. Um, it's a new podcast hosted by Sarah Koenig of This American Life. She's investigating uh, a murder that happened in 1999. New chapter every week. Simple premise. Huge hit. Number one podcast since it started. Um, since I had almost nothing to do with Serial, I can say this without patting myself on the back at all. I think it's incredibly great and um, exciting and for all the reasons that other people do. It's gripping. I want more and more of it every week. It feels like a novel to me, um, the way a novel that you love becomes this parallel world in your head that, that you want to get back to as soon as you can, you know, to find out what, what happens next. And there are a lot of things to say about it, um, maybe that will be said in the future, um, but, but, but for now, I just want to talk about one thing, which is, you know, cereal was sort of uh, declared addictive almost right out of the gate. Um, it, it created a feeling of kind of inevitability about itself, um, you know, inevitable success and inevitable audience. And, and I think there may be people who kind of credit publicity for a lot of that. And it has gotten plenty of publicity. And actually, let me just throw in here, like Sarah Koenig, Julie Snyder, have no idea that I'm saying this. I'm, I am not being paid to say this. Um, um, so, so, so it, yeah, it has gotten a lot of publicity, um, but that addictiveness, that feeling of inevitably, I feel it's important to say, was built painstakingly out of nothing by the show's creators, Sarah Koenig and Julie Snyder. There was nothing inevitable about a story of a 15-year-old murder case grabbing people's attention and holding it. They did that with the choices that they made in writing and editing that I just found like admirable and so smart and I want to talk about a few of those things and so I want to play this will be again for some people but for the first time for others maybe the first few minutes of this show this new podcast serial how it begins and just talk about what they're doing here what moves they're making starting with the first 43 seconds For the last year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was for an hour after school one day in 1999. 
or if you want to get technical about it, and apparently I do, where a high school kid was for 21 minutes after school one day in 1999. This search sometimes feels undignified on my part. I've had to ask about teenagers' sex lives, where, how often, with whom, about notes they passed in class, about their drug habits, their relationships with their parents. And I am not a detective or a private investigator. I'm not even a crime reporter. But yes, every day this year, I've tried to figure out the alibi of a 17-year-old boy. Okay. We haven't met a single character in the story. We're not being drawn in by a, a lurid description of the crime. We don't even know why she's looking into this crime yet. All we know is that she is. She's looking into it. And I just found it a really smart way to start this thing that, you know, how are people going to be drawn in? We're being pulled in by her interest, the way she writes about the scope of what she's working on. It's taken a whole year of her time. And also the the crazy minutia she's gotten into, you know, for example, teenagers' sex lives. From there, she goes to this. Before I get into why I've been doing this, I just want to point out something I'd never really thought about before I started working on this story. And that is, it's really hard to account for your time in a detailed way, I mean. How'd you get to work last Wednesday, for instance? Drive? Walk? Bike? Was it raining? Are you sure? Did you go to any stores that day? If so, what did you buy? Who did you talk to? The entire day, name every person you talked to. It's hard. Now imagine you have to account for a day that happened six weeks back, because that's a situation in the story I'm working on, in which a bunch of teenagers had to recall a day six weeks earlier. And it was 1999, so they had to do it without the benefit of texts or Facebook or Instagram. Just for a lark, I asked some teenagers to try it. Do you remember what you did on that Friday? No. Not not at all. I can't remember anything. (laughs) Wait, nothing? No, I can't remember anything that far back. I'm pretty, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I was in school, I think. No? That's Tyler. He's 18. I asked my nephew, Sam. He's 18, too. Not a clue. Uh, in school, probably. I would be in school. Um, actually, I think I worked that day. No, yeah, I worked that day, and I went to school. That was about it. Actually, on second thought? I don't think I went to school that day. You don't think you went? Yeah, no, I didn't. I definitely didn't. Here's Sam's friend, Elliot. He seemed to have better recall. Actually, I may have gone to the movies that night later. Do you remember what now you saw? Now that I'm thinking. I'm sorry, yeah, I think I saw 22 Jump Street. Okay. And what, did you go with friends? Yeah. I went with Sam and Kid Sean, Carter, a bunch of people. Wait, you, Sam, my, my nephew Sam? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So Sam says he was at work. Oh, then it wasn't that night then. So, so again, you know what she what she's doing here. Um, it it just it's it seems like this sort of funny, you know, kind of light thing to throw in, which which it is. But it's 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 also like it's it's carrying these other two, I think, very important things for this story, for you know, launching it into the world and kind of into people's minds. Which is first, of course, it's kind of preemptively eliminating a reason some people kind of might dismiss the story or, or lose interest as it goes along. Like, yeah, you know, if the guy doesn't have an alibi and he doesn't really remember where he was, he's probably guilty. This is her making clear, not so fast. You probably couldn't account for yourself six weeks six weeks back either. The second subtle thing that I think this section does that is that is so smart and 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 crucial is 
She gets some teenage voices into listeners' minds early in this story because none of the people listeners are going to hear from are teenagers anymore. People are only going to hear from adults. But the teenagers uh, in the beginning are already by then stuck in their minds as a reminder, these were all teenagers when this happened, and that's important. That's, that's part of what happened. So I wanted to, to put this in at the end of my talk because sometimes I feel like editing is this mysterious process in radio that doesn't get the credit it deserves, and um, I think it was absolutely crucial and um, has made has made cereal and a lot of other things and everything I have ever done better and good and so I wanted to take my hat off at the end of my speech to that and I will end here because I want to leave some time for Q and A and I just really appreciate you asking me to speak thank you all for listening this was really fun. Do people have questions, or do you want to go like eat key lime pie? I won't hold it against you at all. That looks like it's a vote for pie. That's fine with me. No, nope. No. Nope. Uh, for the for the future, if you go to the microphones, then people can hear your questions. I'll just repeat it. She said, um, can I talk about writing into tape and what I have learned over the years? Um, well, this the <laughs> this will be a, a, a retread maybe for, for some people who've heard me talk before. Um, but I think the, the most important thing that is the hardest thing to remember every time you sit down with a piece of tape is not to just repeat in different words what is already in the tape. You have to write to what is in the tape. You have to use the tape to do something in the story. You have to have that piece of tape in there for a reason, and you want the words around it to make that reason clear. That's the big thing. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. Hi, uh, my name's Joel. I'm just wondering, um, from your perspective, when you're listening to the same tape over and over again, as you do, going, I want to shoot myself in the head. Yeah, yes. and and how do you? Get, get away from the gun um, in terms of being able to um, keep coming back to that same material and, and look at it in fresh eyes rather than that sort of lulling your sense of self into some sort of place where you kind of think you know what's going on but you, it's hard to distinguish what's actually kind of crap and what's the essence of what you're trying to say in this particular moment. That is, that is where editors come in and help you take your head just out of the your ass basically like you're in with the tape so intensely it, like if you've reported this story and you're cutting the tape and you're just like in you're wrestling you're, you, like you need at that point when you have things cut and you don't like you don't even understand anymore what what What's what going is on? going on then you need to play it for somebody you need to play it for a good editor cool thank you uh, hi my name's James um Two things. One, thank you very much for um, the, the This American Life radio comic that you guys produced because oh, that one page on editing for voice 
taught me more about editing for radio than anything. Oh wow! What anywhere. did it teach you? Uh, more about about editing the pacing, uh, really listening for how the boy how people speak, and when you make your cuts and edits to really keep that those beats in mind. Um, if nobody knows what I'm talking about, it's in their iPad app. Uh, go buy it. It's just it's ridiculously brilliant. Um, the other thing, uh, maybe this is a little too inside baseball, or I missed missed it and don't know. Um, you. This American Life was talking about doing a uh, podcast uh, based on the This Week episodes. I don't know where that idea stands right now. Yeah, is that what you're asking? If gotten, yeah, if that had gotten dropped or... Yeah, I, like I, I, I can't speak to that because I don't know. Okay, thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Hi, my name is Luis. Um, <clears throat> my question is... Um, uh, let me make it really clear, first of all. I love Love and Radio. I love Nick Vandercoke. I love Serial. I love all the things that you presented. But I wonder, <clears throat> you know, how, how, how are we supposed to break in and, <clears throat> and have access to all of these audiences if we're not getting a cosign from This American Life? I feel like those shows have had, like, a cosign from somebody that's, like, a super vet, someone like yourself or Ira or, you know, Chad or all these super popular shows, that, you know, someone like me that's, like, way under the radar, all the way down, doing stuff that's, I don't know, maybe niche, but it feels so difficult to have access to an audience unless I'm getting a cosign from somebody way, 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 way up like, like those shows. I mean, I, I am, I think, not the, the best person to address that exact issue, so this is really just... Like, I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head because I, I, don't, I don't know is the answer. But I think that, that we're, um, um, I think we're in, a, in a moment where, like, there's the, the, it's so possible to do your own, your own thing. Like, that is sort of ahead of the how do we get people in the door to this thing. Because I think, you know, podcasts, like, podcasts are huge for all of us, but they are still kind of, like, you know, you know, creaking along for a lot of other people. And so they're, they're just, like, there are a lot of people in your position. And, um, you know, I think you are in a better position maybe than you would be if you were trying to say, get your show onto the radio, and then you have, in addition to this sort of like, you know, I've got to, like, I've got to, you know, try and make clear that I have this audience. It's like, well, it has to, you know, have the right weekend tone, and it has to come, be able to come right after this, and, and like, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a perfect system, but I think it might be better than what used to be, and you're kind of in a, like, a position where, you know, podcasts exist, and that's exciting. That's the best I can do, and I'm sorry that it's not... Like, I'm sure there are people here who could speak to this in a much better way than I just did. No, that I, is I appreciate off you, the top of my head. I appreciate head. you trying to answer the question, because I remember last Third Coast, I think Ira Glass did a, did a talk, and I was frustrated by it, because he's like, look at how much money, and I love 99% Invisible also, and I love Roman Mars. Look how much money they made. I'm like, that's your friend, bro. You featured him on your show. Of course he made money, man. Like, don't just tell me to run out there and find some money. You're not co-signing me. So well, it's, it's frustrating from, from this side of you. I mean, I, 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 I hear you, but I, like, I'm a, I'm a, I got to a little bit take issue with the idea that it's like, well, this is his friend. I mean, there yeah, are lots of there are lots, there are lots of friends of mine who would never get on This American Life because I like they haven't pitched something that I think is going to 
make it on the show. Well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not taking a show about the friend. What I mean is like, like that show was featured on This American Life, and that's and and the way I was presenting it that, that year, it was like, just go out and get the money. Look, it's out there. It's like, no, man, you're not you're not giving the full context of this whole thing, and it's just it's just hard. You know, it's hard for a lot of us. I mean, a lot of people here are independent producers, and it just gets really it's hard and frustrating. We learn so much from you, and we're so inspired, and we want to be in the system, and like, man, the system does not want us. So, like, how are you trying to how are you trying to go about what you're doing? Well, for me, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm not trying to bogart this whole thing, but like, for me, I'm I'm trying to just build build new audiences, right? Like, make make something that I think is going to expand the market in some kind of way, educate those people on what we're doing, and then stretch that as far as I can until it's big enough where I can turn to someone and say, "Yo, I got an audience. Play my stuff because you're going to want this audience." That's the only way, but that's going to take years. I'm willing to commit myself to do that, but. It's going to take years. Without, yeah. <laughs> What's your show, Luis? I'm on both Chicago. I know you. Mickey? Hi. Hi. Um, hi. Uh, so, I have a question related to the... the um, stork story that you shared. Um, He's a raven. Raven, I'm sorry. He would just... be very offended if you called him a stork, I'm sure. Okay, I have a question about the raven story. Yeah. yeah. Um, you um, mentioned loving that story for kind of the ambiguous um, moral of it. I don't know if I loved it so much as I just could not take my ears away from it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just like, I'm really fascinated in stories that don't end up with a thing that you can grasp onto and, and as, as like a, a meaning. Yeah. And um, a lot of like the classic kind of um, radio storytelling rules is that you should have a series of events and then have a clear meaning to latch onto. And I'm wondering um, if you think it's possible to have story, stories that sort of have that room for ambiguity um, towards the end and how can, you can tell when it's working ambiguity as opposed to just like messiness that is more forgettable than something that has a clear resolution. Two important things. One is there's a big difference between a story that you as the creator of it have intentionally um, like thought through every part of it and you have you have you have communicated the ambiguity of the situation as you saw it like you don't you're not uh, you're not um you're not unsure of of um of what you want to do with the story it's that the story is reflecting what you what you saw and the sort of nuances of that so i think that's the first thing is like you got to know what you mean by what you're doing. The second thing is, I mean, I feel like this is a, this is this is a, like if it were me, if it were me, and I uh, I created a story, um, and I was like, you know, I wanna I wanna uh, I wanna get a sense of um, of how this is how this is playing. Like, I wanna know that. I would play it for an editor. I would play it for somebody and say, you know, hey, what do you think? Um, and like, get their get their view. Talk to them about what you were trying to do. And if they're like, okay, 
yeah, I, I see what you're trying to do, but I don't see that reflected in what's what's here. Like, I'm not getting that. I'm not, it's not that, um, you know, when I got to the story, I didn't know what I felt and I was uncomfortable. It's like, I don't know, I don't know what this means. Like, I don't know what it means at all. I don't know anything. And um, so that is another moment where I would say, bring in an editor, somebody you, you trust, you know, somebody whose ears you trust. Cool, thanks. Yeah. I can't really reach this. Um, hi, my name is Elizabeth. Uh, I'm actually still a student journalist here in Chicago, and uh, I wanted to tell you up front that uh, 24 Hours at the Golden Apple was the first podcast I ever listened to, and it changed the way I looked at journalism, so I wanted to thank you for that, first of Ooh, all. Um, and I also live really close to that restaurant, so it's really fun to look at. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the thing I love that you pointed out Love and Radio, because I think that that's one of the most unique podcasts I have ever listened to. I agree. Because it does ignore, it almost ignores the narrator aspect, which a lot of podcasts podcasts adhere to. And I kind of wanted to ask your opinion on what you I don't think it does. No? I don't think uh, I think they're I think they're um, I mean I think they, they, they pull off exactly what, what Mickey was, was talking about that you you know you, you have very um, ambiguous and ambivalent feelings in a lot of Love and Radio stories. But they are very, very clearly thought through, and there is like there is a direction, you know. It's for me, it's not like I'm sort of swimming in this, and I don't know, I, like I don't even know why I'm listening anymore. Like I want to listen, and I want to keep going, and I like there's there's I know that I know that I'm in good hands, you know. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask for your opinion on what you think the healthiest balance is between narrator and source in a lot of these stories. Um, like Sarah Koenig is very present in Serial, um, and I'd say Nick in Love and Radio is not as present, but I think they both work really effectively. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't think there's any ideal balance because, I mean, one of the delights of radio is that, you know, Love and Radio can exist, and Serial can exist, and Radio Lab can exist, and, you know, like, people are just making different choices about is there narration, how much narration, what kind of narration, are they an I narrator in the story, are they not, um, I mean, I, I don't, there isn't one that I think is like, this is the best one, why doesn't everyone do this, I like that everybody does different things, but, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons based on the story that you're trying to do or the tape that you have that I think, like, in this case, maybe this would be better. But if you're committed, like I think Love and Radio is, to being non-narrated, then that like drives, you know, drives all your decisions kind of from just from the get-go, from every reporting mission. Like this is what you're going for. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, um, I'm Angela. I'm from Vermont Public Radio. Thank Hi. you for sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, I was struck by the observation you made about the Steve Martin plumber joke, um, about how what was funny was what he wasn't saying, you know, it existed in the spaces in between. I think the phrase you used was the sorcery with words. Um, But in a sense, the device was understatement, right? And I think that that really distinguishes a lot of the reporting you do um, and the writing you do, and you practice an incredible amount of self-restraint when you're telling these really hard stories where crazy things happen. You're so calm. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how you 
think about that. Um, any anything you keep in mind when you're tackling these issues? Um, I'm just sort of stunned at the idea that somebody's like, "You're so calm." <laughs> um, like I know, I know, I know. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I don't. I mean, thank you. There, there isn't anything that I'm that I'm thinking. Um, I think, you know, I think it's just sort of my taste. Um, I think I. When as I'm the more I'm reading through a script as I as I write it, um, I start cutting out moments where I feel like I sound shrill and annoying to myself, um, and um, so I don't know if that answers it. I'm just if the calm thing is really. It's really <laughs> I don't know. Is it just maybe it's just me? But that's how I experience your reporting. No, I no, I, I mean I think I, I feel like good. Okay, that's working. I'm pulling that off. <laughs> I am adequately not conveying what I'm feeling most of the time. Um, great. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Hi, my name's Emily. Um, I was wondering if you could explain how you listen uh, to other pieces, and when you hear something you like, how you go about you know extracting lessons from it. What do you mean, how I listen? Well, like the things that you played us. So I assume, you know, you were just consuming those the way we all consume media. Yeah. And then obviously something about those things struck you. So how did you, what did you do next? Um, <laughs> I think, um, I think the thing I did after watching that Amy Schumer episode was what was watch it again immediately. I was like, I have to see that right now. I have to see that one more time. Um, what, I, I, I mean, there are definitely times when I hear something or see something and think, I love that idea or that move, and I want to try and do that or put that in my you know, brain as something to try. Um, I think... I think more often, you know, it's a little bit like, what kind of whale is it that's just like sucking in things and like, it's not really distinguishing. Is it Bailey? Yeah, thank you. Um, So yeah, it feels a little bit like like kind of plankton, and I'm like I'm not I'm not doing anything with it at that moment except just like okay, this is I'm feeding, I'm feeding, Um, and. But I, I mean, I, but I think that that things that I like, I I pursue. Like I, as soon as I saw Amy Schumer's show, I was like, I want to watch every episode of the show, and I want to watch every episode of the second season, and I want to like you know track down her her stand up, and I want to you know go back and re-listen to the interview that Mark Marin did with her that I'd already heard once. So, I mean, it, it you know it's it's that thing where you kind of pursue the things you're interested in, but there's nothing that I'm looking at consciously and thinking, like, I want to do just exact that exact thing. That's pretty rare. I mean, in a, in a conscious way for me to be like, I want to do that thing. It does happen, but it's, yeah, it's more the plankton thing. Thanks. Yeah. I 
feel like these are the most terrible answers anyone has ever given. Plankton? What is my fucking problem? God. I'm like sweating up here. Well, thank you for trying. <laughs> no, I've been enjoying them. Um, anyway, my name is Benny Becker. Um, I was... Sorry, wait, what is your name? My name is Benny Becker. Benny? Yes. Okay. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so I was... I've been... Or the, the Mark Marin bit that you played kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Um, especially the way you talked about him being trapped into this situation where he couldn't, you know, get rid of his mistake. He was kind of forced to be humble. And in a way, it ended up making him seem more credible because at least he could kind of stomach it. And I was, I was wondering, um, for, for in radio, especially like in more news kind of radio, is there a place other than issuing corrections where where people could, like, do you see a way that that could kind of be applied where people can be honest about their misconceptions in a way that isn't just, like, you know, a cute little, a cute little trick, but to actually say, like, bring forward the misconceptions people are carrying to add to their credibility and tell a more complete story? You mean if somebody has a beat and they say, oh, you know, I used to think X and now I think Y? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm not sure. That's, I mean, I think that would be something in the area, but I'm just, I'm wondering if that, like, if hearing that left an impression on you of, like, oh, these are kinds of things that could be done. Uh, that did not occur to me. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I can answer that question. I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly something that, that I have thought about, you know, how, how do you... How do you update, you know, your your thoughts on on something? Um, uh, and I think, like there 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 isn't there isn't a way that exists out there. And I'm not sure what I would suggest other than to just do another story, <laughs> do better next time. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what if, I guess I was in particular thinking like in the process. You know, so, I mean, you want to do better the next time if you make a mistake when it's finished, but if you're, like, in the process and you realize, like, oh, I was totally wrong to start, I mean, is there a way to, like... Well, to... I don't know if we're talking about the same thing, but okay. I think, I mean, I think leaving, I think leaving, you know, mistakes or, or sort of weird moments in your tape as a reporter can be very effective and and... And you know, not not just self-indulgent and like, oh, look at me, but can be re- revealing. And I think that's that's also what was in the, you know, the the Jay Thunderbolt thing. Like you learn you learn a lot about him from his drawing attention to the fact that you guys are reporters. I'm watching you. You're watching me. I'm watching you. And you know, I mean, Nick is kind of like, you know, like he's feeling his way in a very weird situation, and you can feel that. And I think that that's that's really interesting to leave in a story. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always help the story. So I don't think you can always put in every, you know, thing that is like sort of a weird moment of you not knowing what to do. But I think sometimes it it really is illuminating. Another winner. I'm telling you, like, the, like the voice in my head is now like it's off and running. Okay, all right, what do we got? 
right. We'll bring it back up. It's good. Um, so I'm Sydney Beveridge, and I was just wondering, in your work with uh, This American Life, both for audio and for video, sort of how the approach differed for video, and if there was sort of lessons from either oh, that informed God. the other. Uh, my lesson from video was don't fucking do it. Okay. Oh my god. Oh my god. I mean, I know it's different. It's different because you you know like you can you can do a GoPro and you can do you know like indie like small budget. Like, but I'm telling you, like every every episode that we did, and I loved I loved working on the TV show. I wanted us to do it. I pushed for it. But you know, like you know one. Every every time we would we would show up, like you know the uh, you know the, the TV guys would say like oh, we got such a light crew we're so light on our feet we showed up in like three SUVs like full of lights and people and just sound guy and dude and you're doing an interview and it's like you know let's have a really like connection where I'm interviewing you about something really personal I'm 20 feet away from you there are like five people standing around it's I I found it like so. I, I ran with all speed back to radio. <laughs> all right. Okay. <laughs> what are you, what okay. are you bringing? <laughs> Hi. Uh, this, this, this should be an easier one. Um, I'm David Boyer with KLW. Okay. And uh, my question is around the 24-hour diner. What inspired it, and what were the tricks that you used that made it so compelling. Oh, thanks. Uh, the, the idea for it was um, Ira knew it, went there. Yeah, he, he, it, was, it was his idea. Um, uh, uh, tricks, yeah. Um, I took the early morning shift uh, and, um, and I don't even, why did I take the early morning shift? I don't even know why I did that. I'm not sure. Um, I think I just thought Everyone's kind of weird in the morning, like that. I did think that, and it had actually turned out to be, to be true. <laughs> like all the people I talked to were a little weird. I felt a little weird. It was it, it, like that was the only thing I was thinking of. Was like, talk to everybody about why they're here at you know five in the morning. Like, why are you here, just sitting alone in a booth? And you know, they'd be like, Why am I here? Why are you here, weirdo? Um, um. It, Really, no technique. I just talked to every single person who would talk to me, and whatever they said, I was like, whoa, let's take this on. That was the only thing. Cool, thank you. Oh. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ann Ford. I'm wondering, at what, um, at what points in a story do you feel the most scared or awkward or nervous? <laughs> well, this one, currently. <laughs> okay. Um, Johanna just said two more questions. Okay, should I start over? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I will. Um, at what points in the story do you feel most scared or awkward or nervous? Like, uh, just a feeling of doom, and how do you deal with it? Well, that's a two-parter, isn't it? Um, when do I feel most awkward or nervous, and when do I feel the feeling of doom? No, well, I, I meant how do you then deal with it? The oh, feeling. You, right, okay. All, not just, all of the above feelings. <laughs> not just what is my experience, but can you just actually say something useful? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
the feeling uh, uh, of being awkward and nervous um, is, you know, pretty much the entire reporting process. Um, that's that's what that is, and um, and then the feeling of doom is the whole writing process. So. <laughs> I see we have some doomed souls <laughs> in the audience. Um, the, like, the only thing I can say is like, hang on, hang on. Like you get to the end of every story and it doesn't seem like you're going to. And every reporting trip is like, oh my God, and this and that, it's not working, my equipment is screwing up and I didn't get that one thing and I missed that special moment. And, I, and you, just, you just like crazily just try to you know, bust, bust your ass anyway, and it, you know, and you get something, you get a story, you get through it. That is the only thing. Just, like, hang on. Thank you. Don't stop believing. <laughs> oh. It's okay. All right. Um, my name is Abigail, and I have a question for you. It's kind of funny, somebody was asking about the the um, television portion of This American Life, but this is a question that's kind of been culminating uh, before this week and before this conference, and um, it kind of tags along one of our sessions this weekend about ethics, and I wanted to ask you about the episode where um, a gentleman, I don't remember what his condition was exactly, but he uh, was in a wheelchair, and he had several medical conditions that qualified him as, as being disabled, and uh, Johnny Depp, I believe, ended up being his... Like, oh, yeah. His right, um, in the TV show. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. my question is... He wasn't just, in a wheelchair. He's, he's like, he's, it's, it's, I mean, it's worse than that. But right. Yeah, okay. Right. It was pretty severe. Yeah. Um, not to, not to make it that his quality of life is lesser than anybody else, but severe. Um, but being a person with a disability and wanting people with disabilities to be portrayed in a better light in media rather than just being an object of inspiration or something or just an object of not being novelty. Mm-hmm. How do you feel portraying those stories? Um, obviously, he was interested and wanted somebody like Johnny Depp to voice for him. Yeah. He was okay with that. But yeah, that was, his, that was his choice. He right. Wanted, he, he, he picked how do him. You, how do you approach sharing people's stories that the public would otherwise be uncomfortable listening or watching because that person doesn't sound uh, like it, they don't have an easy listening voice or they don't look like normal. Um, yeah. Um, I think those are, you know, those are complicated questions that I don't have, you know, serious expertise in, in a sort of ongoing way. Like, I've, you know, done done this and that and the other, but I, I don't have, like, the kind of deep thinking about it that it sounds like maybe you do. I will say that I think, you know, I I don't... I never like the idea that somebody in a story of mine... Um, seems uh, seems just pitiable and not um, you know not having um, something um, that is theirs 
that is revealed in the story, just even the smallest thing that is is not just, um, you know, they're not just representing an idea, mm-hmm. um, but they are they are a, a person. So I think that that is important to me in every story with every person, no matter what their abilities are. I think it's it's especially important in this situation but then what you do is always different like how do you do that with any specific condition or person that is just like you know that is what you figure out as you're doing that story that's the thing that you you learn awesome thank you that might be it <laughs>